I'm Amy, sex educator, somatic sex and relationship coach, and sex shop owner. And I'm April, VP of an international high-end pleasure products company and boss queen sex toy mogul. We're best friends who make our own rules about who we are as sexual beings. With everything from how to be a badass in the bedroom to top tips for bringing your relationship to the next level, we have something just for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Don't forget to head on over to our website at shamelesssex.com for more. And for 15% off of some of our favorite sex toys, use coupon code SHAMELESSPP in all caps at purepleasureshop.com. Hey, everyone. Howdy, folks. Howdy. Welcome to Shameless Sex. I'm not going to talk in that accent. This just is too much. <laughs> Why not? I really like it. I've been doing South all day on you, too. I didn't even notice. You didn't? Yes, you did. Because before, remember, I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go over there and get some things, which I love the South, P.S. So thank you for our listeners from the South for bringing that beautiful, charming accent everywhere you go, naturally. So my partner says that every time I go on a business trip with April, I come back and I talk different <laughs> than I normally do. And I have all these little voices for about everything. No, just, just. I know we do that, we, but we, I, it's naturally funny. I'm into it. Well, this is why I say it. I said that we're kind of like identical twins that were separated at birth. And so we have our own secret language. You got a nicer vulva. Just kidding. I love my vulva. When did you see my vulva? I don't know. Maybe never. No, I have seen it. We've changed before in front of each other. Did you actually see my vulva, though, or just my beeve? <laughs> I mean, I didn't examine your beeve or your vulva. <laughs> I mean, I, when I think of vulva, I think you get a whole shot like my clitoris and my labia. I don't really think you've seen that. Do you want to see it right now? <laughs> anyway, I'm having, um, yes, you can show me whenever you want. <laughs> but apparently I have, you were like, what's up with your wide and long <laughs> vaginal canal? Oh, yeah, we're, so we're trying out this new product. Uh, it's called Flex, and it is a disposable menstrual cup. Now, we're not usually big fans of disposable of things because we're very environmentally friendly. And this one is fucking awesome. So I use regular menstrual cups, which are silicone cups. They kind of take over the whole vaginal canal. And there's this new product that is designed by women for women called Flex. And it is awesome. It's it's kind of like a flat angle and it has... It's easy to insert. You put it in. It actually covers up the cervix, and it collects the menstrual blood for you. But the cool thing about it is, is that you can have penetration going on at the same time because it doesn't take over the whole vaginal canal. I even tried it with my partner, and they were a big fan of it. And April is testing out right now. And I, I had a bit of a... If anybody has listened to a podcast before about menstrual cups, I had two removed by my doctor when I lived in L.A. because they flipped upside down, and I couldn't get it out. So Amy told me, what's wrong with your... Not that it's wrong, but she's like, maybe you got a wide... wide and it's from a movie. It's from a movie that says something about, it's not my fault I have a wide set vagina. Right, but I've been told I have a shallow vagina, but my fingers, I think, are just not long enough to reach out and get a handle on getting the, the cups out. So this Flex Fit, I didn't put it in right, apparently, and it was leaking. So Amy's like, do you know where your cervix is? I'm like, it's deep in there. I can't feel it. Well, I asked if you know where your cervix is, and then you were kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> and I was like, well, have you ever stuck your finger in there to feel for your cervix? And you said no. So I highly suggest... Everyone who owns 
a cervix to go and explore this part of your body, at least to understand. Because the cool thing about the cervix is, is it will raise and lower based on hormones, different times of the month. Um, and in fact, when you're fully aroused, the cervix lifts up and makes more room in the vaginal canal for you to insert other things inside of there. So it's really fascinating. It's really cool. I think you should stick a finger there. And I just showed you, but really, April, go feel up your cervix. We're going to read some reviews from our dear listeners. And at first, I would say Ian S. in Santa Cruz. Thank you for this feedback and telling us that we should read reviews from our beloved listeners from iTunes. Uh, we love your reviews. We always talk about how much we love them. And in fact, we're going to read them online. And we, what we're also going to do in the future is find out a way to make it, make it so that when we read yours online, the most awesome review ever of the month is going to get a free sex toy. Now, we're still figuring out how to do that. But until then, we're going to read your review. You want to read the first review? Sure. Most recent. We're going for this one? Okay. The The title is awesome. And it's from... Fim, Fim Mindlin, <laughs> F Mindlin, <laughs> Midlin, maybe. Sex positive messaging is hard to do without seeming smarmy. I was like smarmy, smarmy, preachy, or hottie. April and Amy have a great have great chemistry and a wonderful directness and charm. One of my favorite podcasts. Woo! Thanks, F Mindlin, Midlin. <laughs> We don't know how to say it, but we really appreciate it. It was on December 9th, so that's a 2017. So thank you for taking the time to write us a review. I'll read one. Says love, exclamation point. And this is from Cast 97 uh, on October 19th. They wrote, love this podcast. I grew up very religious and had a lot of shame when talking about anything to do with sex. Thanks so much for being so open. Love listening. Thank you. Awesome. And we have a number of reviews in here, and we would, could always use more because what the reviews do is it helps to get our, our podcast out there. So uh, if you're loving our podcast and you want to spread the good word, you don't even have to tell a lot of people about it, although we like that too. But when you review it, it makes it us more noticeable in the in the, the World Wide Web. So very helpful. And we are trying to get a wine sponsorship still. <laughs> but the thing is, a lot we found that a lot of wineries, it's sort of that conservative kind of bougie background so we're looking for someone that would fit with us um so if any of you have an idea reach out to us let us know we can approach them we're pretty good with well we have an amazing situation happening where we're teaching so many people about all the goods that life can offer so we can offer their wine to all the good people out there so an announcement uh, coming up in Santa Cruz. If you are in Santa Cruz and you are a parent and you have middle schoolers, middle schoolers meaning age 11, April's looking at me like, what the hell are you talking about? Middle schoolers age 11 to 13. Uh, I am co-facilitating a workshop here with someone in Santa Cruz at Luma Yoga Studio. And this is for parents to come with their young teens to learn about sex in the way that we all wish that we had in um, back in middle school. But most of the time in middle school, we were just told what to do, what not to do, all the bad things. If you do this, you're going to get this. Don't do this. Don't do that. Uh, and this is a different form of sex education. We did do an episode as well where we I did. wasn't a part of yeah. sex and teens. Yes. Yeah. There's an episode that we actually did um, on this with, with actually with Gina, who I'm co-facilitating with. And uh, but we're offering the workshop again. And it's February 3rd and 10th, I believe. I'm going to double check that. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And it is going to. So it's a two day workshop. It's for parents to come with their young people and they all get to learn side by side. And it's 
I mean, that itself is kind of edgy, and it's a great way for parents to learn how to be their kids' allies in when it comes to sex and relationships. Maybe I should attend because children, teenagers are entering my life slowly. This is true. Maybe you should. Hey, there you go. Yeah, because her man has some young people in her life. Uh huh. In his life. Well, and I mean, but now they're in your life too. This is true. Yeah. So if you want to learn more, April, then um, yes, you find out more at Luma. Will I look like a weirdo if I show up solo? Um, I mean, I don't think so. <laughs> you have to come with your young person. You can't just show up with just as an adult. So this is for parents <laughs> and their teens. So I can't come solo. No, and please don't go try to find a random strange <laughs> child on the side of the road to go with you. Really? <laughs> yes. So if you want to find out more, please go to lumayoga.com. That's L-U-M-A yoga.com. And you can find out more about this workshop and even sign up. Okay, now some sex questions. You just closed your computer. Where's the sex I questions? On my phone. Oh, she's got it. Okay, here we go. All right. This person we're going to call Jacob M. Jacob M. writes, and this is about the Pelvic Floor Podcast. Hi, guys. During the latest podcast, you suggested an online resource for improving sex skills, but I couldn't make out what you said. This is probably because we talk really fast. Uh, he, he thinks it was when we were answering the question from the guy who was ashamed about not watching porn. Would you please send the link? So, Jacob, um, we I would listen to that again, and I don't remember. Maybe it was in the beginning of the episode, but I'm assuming it's OMGS. OMGS I talk about all the time, and it is definitely an online resource for improving sex skills, and it's specifically related to pleasuring vulvas. So if you go to omgs.com, uh, OMG, like, oh, my God, uh, then you can find out more about that. And it's a really, really awesome program where it's real-life information from real-life humans that are like, this is how I like to pleasure myself, and you can learn from their testimonials and there's actual videos of them showing you because we're visual people we need to actually see what we're learning if we just read it it's just kind of hard for our, our mind body and spirit to comprehend so uh, i think that that's really helpful and uh, it's for vulva owners or for people who like vulvas if you have one and you just want to know how to pleasure your own vulva or if you like vulvas and you want to learn how to pleasure them uh, or different techniques new techniques spice things up uh, OMGS might be for you, so I suggest checking that out. And that's the only thing I can think of that we were referring to. There's some great videos as well out there, uh, instructional videos. Pure Pleasure has a, a great, I think, DVD section slash online. You can get online videos about how to pleasure the pussy, um, how to pleasure the diaka. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of different resources out there, but I think specifically that's what we were referring to on that episode. That's right. At Pure Pleasure, we do have online sex ed videos. So if you go to purepleasureshop.com and you click on the online sex ed, we've actually filmed a number of the workshops that I've taught and um, and also other educators have taught. So there's a How to Drive a Volvo workshop that's online, which is specifically about how to please a pussy. Um, and then there's a Orgasmic Bliss Male Sexual Pleasure. Um, when I say male, male-bodied sexual pleasure. And then there's also a new one that I taught that I filmed. It's called Orgasm 101. So you can learn from home anywhere you are. Oops, there you go. She's pouring wine. She spilled it on her computer. Whoopsies. <laughs> All right, we have one more sex question. That's it. What you got? I got Holly B. Holly B. So Holly B writes some sex questions. Is it safe to wear kegel balls while you work out or in hot yoga class? Any tips on pleasuring specifically uncircumcised cocks? P.S. Thank you so much for all the information. I've learned so much from you. Namaste. Namaste. 
Thank you for that. Amy, you want me to open? Because I have some things to say. First, I want to start with the uncircumcised cocks because I've had my share in my 10 months of singledom. I, in singularity, I did please some uncircumcised cocks. And honestly, as soon as the uncircumcised cocks are hard, you really can't recognize the difference in my, if this is for me. Um, I would say treat the uncircumcised cock like it has its own masturbation sleeve if it's um, not erect. So do what you would do with a circumcised penis. Um, and I'm sure Amy could have some more direct tips with that. But in my experience, really, there is not a lot of difference other than I didn't need a lot of lubrication at all when doing any kind of hand slash mouth um, pleasuring. I felt like it was actually easier for me because it was self-lubricating. So very cool experience. There's only 1%, this conversation has been coming up, but there's only 1% of the world's population have circumcised penises, and most of them are in the continental United States. Only 1%? Only 1%. I know. Uh, so the guy that, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the person that I had was from Scotland, and only 1 in 25 is circumcised in Scotland. He told me that stat. And the most redheads are located in Scotland wow. on the entire planet. One in four is a redhead in Scotland. <laughs> Stats coming to you from the top. <laughs> the other thing I will say about Kegel balls, um, and I'm sure Amy will agree, yes, you can wear them while you work out. I actually love wearing Kegel balls, the weighted balls, while I'm going running. Hot yoga class, for certain. Uh, I think that certainly you can wear those and experience them. You only need 20 to 30 minutes to actually benefit from them, but it's best to have your body in motion. Fun Factory has their cu their their cups. Well, yes, they have cups, but their Kegel balls that actually, while well, the the motion, the, the movement of your body with the balls inside of your when your pelvic floor reacts to them, actually activates like the muscles engage faster, and and it's better for you to be in motion. What do they call it, like the lazy person's Kegel exerciser? Yeah. Well, it's not lazy because you have to be moving. Your body has to move. And when your body moves and you have these balls inside of you, and it's essentially, it's not just the Benoit balls that you traditionally see. It's like balls within the balls. So they shake inside of you. It's like a shake weight. And they move around. And your body's like, what the fuck? And it starts to clench down on it automatically. So you got, it's not really that lazy because you kind of have to be uh, moving, but you don't have to do Kegel exercises. It's better for you if you're using the modern day Kegel exercisers, like the smart balls from Fun Factory, which you can get 15% off if you go Holly B on Pure Pleasure's website. Um, you can get 15% off the smart ball. Th that's the company I used to work for, but those I've owned several different types of Kegel balls and those in particular are my favorite because they require little to no effort to hold them inside. So, but movement is recommended. So yes, wear them while you're exercising. A hundred percent, you'll you'll reap the benefits faster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so let's see. I'll go to the circumcised question. Just for my my opinion, ex everything that April said about uh, the the pleasuring is it isn't really isn't that different, especially when cocks are hard. The foreskin pulls back anyways, unless they have a lot of foreskin, and sometimes they do. Sometimes people do, and it just kind of hangs out. But Foreskin is self-lubricating. It makes a great jack-off device. Um, I do still think it's kind of funny that we cut babies from the start and, and tell, teach people that they're already born imperfect from day one by um, already cutting off parts of their bodies when they're young. And so I'm not 
anti-circumcision, but I do think it's really interesting that we live in a culture that's really concerned with that. And we actually talked about that recently on a podcast. So I'm not going to go too deep into that. Um, people who do have foreskin, though, they do uh, somehow sometimes run into hygiene things in terms of the uh, moisture that can build up under the foreskin. But that's not related to pleasure. This question is about pleasure. As, a, as if you're pleasuring the foreskin, you don't really have to think much about it as being that different. Other than it's a free jack-off device, it's self-lubricating. It protects the head of the penis, just like the hood of the clitoris, because they're the same thing. Um, so it's uh, and it has a lot of nerve endings. The foreskin itself can feel really nice in terms of the way that you touch it. And it, so it, and when something has a lot of nerve endings, it means it's sensitive to touch. Um, so and it can handle all kinds of touch, but it can be highly sensitive in that you put really intense pressure in there. It can be too much. So just something to consider when you're dealing with foreskin. Kegel balls. I will say if you wear the ones that aren't connected to each other through like the way smart balls are from Fun Factory, if they're separate and you're doing some workout, they just in the some positions when you're like tightening and releasing the pelvic floor, they could move. So just be prepared that you might lose a ball. But if you're using the ones that April talked about, they might stay in place a little bit better. And, and a misconception is that a small ball is going to be it's going to be easier to hold on to. But typically, if it's a it's if it's a larger ball, it is easier for your body to sort of um, gain um, traction right with. So remember, size does does matter, and it and it, uh, go with an average size smart balls. I'm telling you, they're really easy. I just love all this talk about pussies, don't you? I love pussies, like the cats. I love kitties, and I love pussies and vulvas. Does everyone here, does everyone know the difference between a pussy? Can, uh, I wish that they could actually <laughs> respond. <laughs> I mean, a pussy can be so many things, right? I mean, it's not so many, but I mean, people will call a vagina a pussy or a vulva, but a lot of people don't know the difference between a vagina I and a vulva. I just love when talking dirty and talking dirty saying, fuck my pussy rather than fuck my vagina. <laughs> but that sounds, what is the word, cacophonous? It's it's clinical, it's clinical and, and it's cacophonous, like it's harsh and it's a lot, like vagina. And yeah, it's just a lot to say when you're having sex. Sarcophagus? A sarcophagus? No. Um, <laughs> cacophonous. So we're going to stick with uh, pussy. But, anyways, the difference between vagina and vulva. So, vulva is external anatomy. So, this is going to be labia majora, labia minora, clitoris clitoral hood, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the vagina is actually inside. So this is the vaginal canal. April's doing all these funny hand symbols that you can't really see. <laughs> She's describing it. But really, when you're looking at a pussy, um, chances are you're probably just seeing vulva. And the vagina is the vaginal canal that you don't really have visual access to, unless they spread their legs and bear down and you got a little sneak peek. <laughs> I'm doing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> you wish you were at our house, don't you? Uh, okay, so that was a lot of conversation. And now we are going to segue into our topic for the day, which isn't about pussies and <laughs> isn't about Kegel balls and all the fun things that we've talked about or wine. It is about non-monogamy, open relationships, polyamory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And... Uh, you will hear our little introduction in the beginning, but this is a episode that we recorded with Celeste of uh, CelesteAndDanielle.com, who are the co-creators. They both create together 
uh, the Somatica method, which is a sex and relationship coaching method, or you could call it a therapeutic method, although they're not identifying as therapists. And uh, you'll hear more about what they do. But Celeste actually practices non-monogamy and assists couples and individuals in um, opening up their relationships. And that's not all she does, by the way. She helps the people for all kinds of sex and relationship stuff. But non-monogamy does come up. And just to be clear, listeners, for folks of all different relationship orientations, uh, whether whether you're single, with someone, open, whatever you are, it's monogamous, monogamish, this episode is for you. Yeah, so there's just because you hear the topic non-monogamy, it doesn't mean that you won't be able to pull out some really awesome relationship tips for a monogamous relationship. So... And I welcome you, we both, April and I welcome you to continue listening and perhaps you will learn some things to apply to your relationship or to future relationships. And if not, then, well, we're probably pretty entertaining, so <laughs> as we usually are. So without further ado, welcome to our episode on non-monogamy. Celeste Hirschman is a sex expert and she is part of Somatica, and I will give you more information about Somatica in a little bit. Uh, along with her, so she started Somatica along with her business partner, Daniel Harrell, and has worked with thousands of clients, helping them realize their full sexual and emotional potential. She is the co-author of Making Love Real, The Intelligent Couple's Guide to Lasting Intimacy and Passion. Celeste and Danielle also co-created the experiential and cutting-edge Somatica method of sex and relationship coaching. Celeste practices open relationship and helps couples make decisions around open relationships, polyamory, and monogamy. Celeste, welcome to our show. We're so excited to have you here. Hi, Thank Celeste. you. I'm so excited to be here. Hi. Yay. Hi. So I actually took the Somatica training with Celeste, um, was that last year, 2016. God, it's already 18, so the year before last year. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, in 2016, it was such an awesome experience. I got so much useful information about that and about how to work with clients and also for my own practice and for myself with my own partners. And it was really helpful. And um, yeah, Celeste, do you want to tell us just a quick little before we go into non-monogamy about what Somatica is all about? Yeah, I mean, I think really Somatica um, fills a niche that was missing, which is how to do experiential sex and relationship coaching with people. So there's a lot of body work out there. There's a lot of talk therapy out there, but there isn't a lot of places where you can practice kind of the intermediate between just, you know, talking to someone, but actually learning about touch, learning about seduction, learning about pleasure and embodiment, and also learning how to be really emotionally intimate and vulnerable. So we created a practice to help people you know, learn how to do those in a step-by-step way, um, break them down into the nuts and bolts, and then actually practice with your practitioner or practice with your partner in uh, in session. So, so Somatica is really to help professionals, but also many people are now taking it for personal growth to learn how to have better sex and relationships with their partners. And who doesn't want that? I know, I who know, when, yeah, everyone does. <laughs> I know when I signed up for it, I, um, I was going with the intention of uh, learning more about the sex and relationship coaching practice for my own practice. And I got so much out of it for my own personal use, I'll say as well. So uh, it was, it really, and it actually surprised me that how much I got out of it. I was like, oh yeah, this is, I'm, I'm doing some deep work here. <laughs> it's not oh. just about my clients and as I get this education. So uh, that feels really, so good to hear. Yeah. Really beautiful practice. I have a number of friends that have 
have uh, gone down that journey as well. So we'll go in a little more to the, more. We'll go into that a little more at the end as well. But if you want to find out more about that, you can go to www.somatica.com. And uh, let's go into our topic, non-monogamy. Now, we like to always start out kind of with the why these days, why this information is important, how this will help relationships, um, and, because, and then we'll go kind of define what non-monogamy is. But Celeste, can you tell us why what we're about to talk about is important and how this can help people in relationship, whether it's monogamous or non-monogamous? Yeah, I think it's extremely important because right now, um, the way that the dominant, you know, culture is set up, people are making the monogamous choice by default. It's not a choice at all. In other words, people feel like, okay, this is what it means to be in relationship. I have to have sex with one person, you know, preferably for the rest of my life. Um, and that's, that's how we, that's how we say whether or not someone is successful, if they can have like a monogamous relationship with someone for the rest of their life. Unfortunately, many, if not most people are not monogamous, at least in their minds, they're thinking about having sex with other people. And often we aren't even allowed to talk about that. But some people want to be sexual with other people, even throughout their lives and their long-term relationships. So I think it's really important to put it on the menu and for, for us as adults to say, okay, you know, there's many choices out there. What is the choice that fits best for me? Up front, because so many people end up in these monogamous marriages and they really have known all along or realize at some point that they're not monogamous, but then they're stuck and they're vilified. And um, it's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we actually just did a podcast yesterday that will go actually probably be on the air before this with uh, Chris Ryan, who wrote Sex at Dawn. And he was talking about that more from an anthropo- uh, anthropological perspective and his journey in. Um, being in relationships and having this desire to be with other women, which he automatically started shaming himself for. There must be something wrong with me or must be something wrong with my partner. She's not enough of this or not enough of that. When really, when he was able to normalize it for himself, that no, he just has desires for other and that it has nothing to do with his partner and what was, what was missing, then he was felt a lot more free and it got inspired to go on this whole journey with this book. So, um, I think that that's a really, really important topic, the assumption that we are uh, just going to be with one person forever and ever and ever can be really limiting when it does not feeling like it's working anymore. Exactly. And I mean, I'm a huge fan of monogamy. I'm a huge fan of open relationship. I'm a huge fan of people finding what actually works for them and and negotiating for it. So, you know, there's not I don't have an agenda that people have a particular type of relationship, but I do have an agenda that people be true to themselves in relationship. Mm hmm. I feel like after my relationship with my husband ended, ex-husband now, I really struggled with if I did want to go back into a monogamous relationship just because I can't even, I can't commit to a tattoo and (laughs) another marriage seems just off for me, just totally off the, off the radar. I'm not even going to go down that path again, but I'm really interested in learning about not, I'm in a monogamous relationship right now, Celeste, but Mm -hmm. Um, I think like, I'm always wondering maybe later on exploring non-monogamy and how to do it properly Mm -hmm. with good communication and, and, um, not the cheating road, (laughs) which I feel like a lot of folks end up going down when they're unhappy. They do. Yes. Mm -hmm. So what can can we define non-monogamy, the different types of non-monogamy? I know there's a lot of them, but, um, to start with kind of some of the the more common ones that people identify with, so open relationships, poly, swingers, et cetera. Can you give us a little information about each of those? Yeah, and I think there's also monogamish, right, coined oh, by yeah. 
Dan Savage. So, you know, I think non-monogamy is anything where you're having sexual interaction with people uh, outside of your primary relationship. And some people are not even in primary relationship and are doing non-monogamy. So, you know, polyamory has more of a feeling of many loves. It's more community oriented, I would say. And people are not just having sex with other people, but also falling in love with other people, having long term relationships with other people. Um, and uh, there's more, you know, so the love piece is brought in a lot more. Some people are more having um, open relationships or non monogamous relationships that are uh, more about sex. So they want they're only really in love with their partner, but they want to have sexual interactions with other people. Um, and then there's, you know, swingers, which I think is probably, uh, you know, the usually a version of that, um, where people are just maybe going to parties or going or meeting up in, you know, with other couples or other individuals to have sex, but then going, you know, often going back to their um, monogamous marriage and not really, they might have long-term sexual relationships with them, but they're not really falling in love with other people. Um, so those are, I would say the two main subcategories. And then some people identify as monogamous. So maybe they're not having sex with other people, or maybe it's very rare that they have sex with other people, but maybe they go out on dates with other people or make out with other people or, um, have threesomes sometimes together with other people. I think it's so individually defined, but, uh, and I think the one size fits all model is one of the biggest problems that we have in society. So I really try to support people in not necessarily worrying about the label or figuring out like what everybody else is doing, but seeing what's right for them. Mm. Yeah. So another example of the uh, unlimited possibilities of making your own rules in relationships, which we always push for in this podcast is to help people get clear on who they really, you know, what are they, what do they really desire and not what just they're told to do in relationship. And as you've all heard from what Celeste listed, there's so many possibilities and this, this is just kind of like the start of it. So, um, so yeah. Um, let's see. Okay. Well, I'll start with my own little personal story. Maybe Celeste, you can tell us about your journey with, um, non-monogamy. Um, and my story will actually show an example of how non-monogamy, um, can work and doesn't work uh, in in relationship. So um, I'm currently in a monogamous relationship with um, with my partner that I've been with off and on for four years. We opened it up for a little while and spent a lot of time discussing the boundaries, hours upon hours, and it was really beautiful the process of developing all these boundaries that we were co-creating together and, and aside from boundaries, just what feels good, what isn't going to feel good, what are we going to do if this happens and that happens. Um, we had decided we're going to an open space and not polyamorous space because we weren't looking to build uh, love, like close loving relationships with other people. We were looking to connect with other people and be intimate, but we weren't relationship building with them. Mm -hmm. And so we made some different rules and regulations for it or boundaries, we'll say. And what ended up happening was it felt really good until um, they essentially, my partner broke one of the boundaries and ended up falling in love with someone else. And so we had a lot of work to do around that. Are we going to stay together? Is he just going to be with that person? Do we want to try to do poly? Um, it became this really confusing thing that came out of you know a, a break in uh, in the contract in the boundaries, and um, then we decided maybe we would try this poly thing, but he was really the only one fully on board for it, <laughs> and mm -hmm. myself and this other woman weren't really wanting that. And then. For me, if I was wanting that, then I would felt like I wanted to be 
a primary partner because we had been building for four years. And it was this very, very confusing thing. And I understood the relationship structure. But I think one of the important things is everyone has to be on board, um, mm-hmm. at least for, for most of what we're doing. And um, long story short, now we're in a monogamous relationship because it's <laughs> healing like we have a lot of work to do in that healing. And is that's just feeling what's right for us. So um, just wanted to share with the world what my some of my personal experience. You think you'll ever go back to attempting um, open the open relationship aspect, Amy? I'm not sure. I'm feeling pretty pretty good on the on being in a monogamous relationship right now. I would say it was fun to share intimacy with other people, but at the end of the day, for myself, I was just really desiring more intimacy with my partner than I was with with uh, a variety. Or um, so it was more that you know my needs weren't being necessarily met there, and that's how we were, we were going to happen. Which is a way that people do open, right, Celeste? Like sometimes it's coming from. There is a mismatch in desire, and so, or not even just desire, that wasn't our case, but um, availability. And sometimes they open it up for that. And I think your story is actually a story not of monogamy or monogamy working, but of your relationship working. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's the most, I mean, I think what people are always saying is like, well, non monogamy doesn't work, but you know, I mean, monogamy has a pretty bad track record too. Relationships are hard in general. And to have a high level of intimacy and connection with your partner, to be, be able to communicate through these things, to be able to be really honest and open about what you want and realize what you're balancing, you know, in terms of like, I want to be with this person, I want to be true to myself, um, and working through those things, that's a functional relationship. It's not whether you're monogamous or non monogamous, it's whether you can work through things together honestly with your partner and really really try to meet everybody's needs as much as possible while also helping people feel safe and comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. good job. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. It was <laughs> a hard year that year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was like, I think that was happening during the somatica training. So I was like, well, this is perfect. I have this perfect place to go through all of it. So it was, yeah, it was, I'm, I'm glad we're here. I'm here where I am now. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> and what about yeah. you? What about your your uh, your journey in the world of monogamy and non-monogamy? Man, it's been such a long journey. So I came out as uh, bisexual. Well, firstly, firstly, let me say that I um, always practiced non-monogamy, but I used to cheat and then I became honest. So, you know, that was a big difference in the way that I was practicing non-monogamy. I came out as bisexual when I was about 19 in college. And at that point I was dating mostly women um, and still occasionally cheating. And then when I graduated, I started dating men again and I just was really open with the men. I said, look, I'm bisexual. I need to be with other women sometimes. And I started to practice honest, uh, open relationship or honest non-monogamy. And it felt so much better to be out about what I needed and to negotiate it with my partner. So, you know, that was a long time ago, uh, 20, 23 years ago now. And since then I have, I don't think I've ever been in another monogamous relationship, although I've had many relationships where there was a monogamous portion of it, like the beginning of it started out monogamous. We would do nine months of monogamy or a year and a half of monogamy, or we would open it up and have threesomes with other people, but we weren't having sex with other people by ourselves, for example. So I've done so many different versions of monogamy. I've done or of non-monogamy where like I've been the only one, you know, I had one partner where I was allowed to be with other women, but he wasn't 
he was only allowed to be with other women when we were together in threesomes. And then eventually I said, okay, it's fine with me if you want to be with other women by yourself. So it really has transformed, um, in each relationship, what the structure of the open relationship was. And with my partner now, uh, we both see other people separately and occasionally we have threesomes together. So the most important aspect of creating a harmonious non-monogamous relationship is just finding the proper balance with the partner, your primary partner in general, like what works for both of you at the time. It doesn't have to be a set boundary. You just kind of create your own story. Yeah, it's an ongoing negotiation. I think like everything is, you know, I think some people say like, like, oh, I have a great story. So I was going to this therapist for a little while recently to do some trauma work. And I told him I was in an open relationship. And he says to me, well, you know, open relationships are really challenging. And I said, yeah, but the challenges that we were dealing with trying to be monogamous were about to break us up. So for us, it was much more challenging to try to be monogamous than to be open, right? And people don't think monogamous relationships are challenging, but of course they are, right? Just for very different reasons. And I think all relationships, in order to be good, deeply intimate relationships, have to have really good, you know, communication. I think we can go into the default of monogamy and everybody can become very like, Uh, take it for granted kind of in a way and not even take care of their relationship because they're like, well, I'm not having sex with anyone else. They're not having sex with anyone else. I don't feel threatened. So I don't have to do the work that intimacy takes. And, you know, I think that's a huge problem with monogamy. So what if let's say, let's give a scenario here. What if my partner comes to me and I'm not ready for non-monogamy yet, but he is, uh, what exactly what do you do? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question. And I always start out with first seeing like, why aren't you ready for non-monogamy? Not that you should be, but like, what is, is it something inside of you where you're like, well, I'm just scared. I'm worried. You know, I need a certain kind of reassurance. So I would need to find out like, do you have any interest in even pursuing the idea of trying to make this an open relationship? And if so, what are your fears and your needs so that we can actually try to work with those so that you do feel safe and comfortable enough? And then as you're going into actually, if you do feel like, okay, I'm ready, like I talked about all my fears, I know what my needs are, then I definitely start with toe dipping. So I try to get couples to say like, okay, so what is it like to just go out and like check out people together and just hear your partner being attracted to somebody else? Or what about if you go and you have a date and you just, your boundary is to like make out with that person and then come home and, you know, hold me and hug me and tell me that you love me so much. You know? <laughs> so to actually take, or maybe like, let's go to a sex party together and just like watch. And then let's go to a sex party together and see what it's like to try something together. So I definitely encourage toe dipping so that you can see like, what is your reaction to a light experience? Because sometimes if you go into like diving into the deep end and just having sex with somebody else, it can be such an intense fear of, you know, attachment, uh, fear of like losing your attachment that it can cause the relationship to crumble. So it's nice to, to take it slowly and gradually. And what happens if, so in what, what would you, how would you advise people if one of the partners if they do the toe dipping and it's still they get a big no and the other person is still is a big yes, like this is a part of who I am and I really need to be in a non-monogamous relationship. What do you have? I mean, go their separate ways, but like, what do you have anything else you want to add to that? Well, I mean, I, I've had clients and Danielle's had clients who've stayed in the tension of that going back and forth and back and forth for years you know, because they want so badly to be together, but they do have different, I would even call them orientations in this instance, right? And so um, it's like, how do you 
you know, navigate across those orientations and maybe they still want to be a family together. So, you know, they'll just keep going, okay, we're going to do some monogamous time. Okay. I'm going to stretch and do some non-monogamous time. Oh, that totally freaks me out. You know, and, and you're, you're, you're doing that for a long time. Other people do decide, Hey, this is too much. I don't want to, um, keep being in this tension. I want to move on and find somebody who has a similar orientation than I do. And some people are willing to say, you know what, I'm going to give up on that part of myself because being in this relationship is so important to me. I don't have a judgment about any of those choices as long as people are making them choicefully and not from a place of resignation or resentment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Being the, that quick reaction, I'm going to protect myself and put up my wall and I need to win. And if I don't win, it's all or nothing. And I'm, yeah, that's the, the stories like people are constantly playing can definitely get in the way. Um, what, so let's, let's talk about what works, like what works really well. You gave us some tips earlier on those conversations and negotiation, but what really works in creating, um, I don't want to use the word healthy, but a strong, uh, a strong open communication practice in non-monogamy. I think it's really helpful to, uh, not have an idea. I mean, I think the, the hardest part is that people have an idea about the way things are supposed to be and constantly shaming each other. Like you're not supposed to, you know, you should know that it's not okay to let your partner sleep in our bed or let one of your partners sleep in our bed. Like, how could you have done that or something like that? And instead assume that people have totally different approaches to things and blaming and shaming somebody else doesn't work, but actually saying, Hey, you know, I, I, I would feel really like I want our bed to be our sacred space. And I would feel really a lot better if you were going to have sex with other people, if you would do that outside of our bedroom or something like that to, to not say, not act as though there's a, an appropriate way to be in these situations, but actually talk about like what you feel and what you need just from your own perspective, not assuming that you're the right person who's like everybody else and they're the wrong person who's doing it all wrong. Right. So you really want to take the blaming, shaming out and really just talk about personally, what are each person's needs and feelings and fears and the experience, um, and be willing to listen and not try to like, just get your agenda moving, but actually hear the other person and hear what they're scared of and acknowledge that it is, can be scary or that they can understand why the person wants their, their, that particular boundary, but maybe the other person doesn't want that particular boundary. So they have to keep talking about it. Like that makes me feel really, you know, like, um, controlled if I can't do that or something like that. So it's an ongoing communication to see like, what is that touching inside of each person and not blaming or shaming when that happens. I think a lot of times these days, especially maybe not so much in our Santa Cruz bubble or maybe the Bay Area bubble, because I feel like we're with a lot of open minded folks. But when we hear from people from, let's say, the Midwest, Wisconsin, where I grew up or some of the southern states, they're afraid to break the norm. They're like, that's not normal. Um, And it's just I think it's important for people to realize that. There is no normal. You can create your own normalcy. There, I I think that what you're describing to me, it sounds it's it's freedom. It's like yeah. create the space, this beautiful picture that you want with your partner that works for you. And I love that. It makes me happy. <laughs> yeah. And I also tell people, you know, you have a right to privacy. If you're surrounded by people who are going to judge you and shame you for who you are, like you don't have to come out to them. You know, <laughs> like it's up to you to to make those decisions. And I I do feel like open relationship is going to be the next big coming out. And I don't know if you saw this morning, there's like a new Netflix commercial about like open Netflix watching. (laughs) It all starts with Netflix. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But I think that's very, I mean, they're sort of talk in a joking way, talking about negotiating open relationship around Netflix watching, but it's like, that is very mainstream. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this idea that there's other options is becoming much more mainstream, which I think is really exciting. And I think people are going to start coming out about it and bucking the system and saying, Hey, look, we're, you know, we've been doing this for years. You know, we've been swinging and having a great time. Yeah, they're, like, they're <laughs> celebrities. I think Goldie Hawn came out a long time ago and said the only reason her relationship worked so well with Kurt Russell was because they had an open non-monogamous agreement for years since like the seventies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go Goldie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What do you, what do you feel about um, ra- like radical honesty in as part of the communication uh, part of com- the communication practice in non-monogamy? I'm not a fan of radical honesty because I feel like um, we think all sorts of things about ourselves and our partner all the time. Some of them are just true in a fleeting moment and don't actually have any bearing on how we feel about them. And if we spit ev- out every single thought that we have, um, I think it causes chaos in relationship. I think it's really appropriate for adults to do some work inside of themselves or with a therapist or with a, a, a friend to, to sort of see like, what is it that I really need? What is it I really feel? What is it I really want to say? Instead of just thinking like everybody should just say everything that's on their mind and everybody should just be able to deal with it. I don't think that's very caring of um, human sensitivities. And I don't think it's very mature, actually. Mm. Yeah. And I think it can be pretty exhausting, especially if someone's constantly in process. (laughs) They're just bringing someone else in their process all the time. And just break people down over time. So, okay, so that so rad, that would be radical honesty, conveying that idea is just kind of being radically honest, conveying everything that is feeling like it's true for you um, as it comes. But uh, but what about uh, like ne- I guess negotiating? Because you're so you're essentially saying that in relationships, open or not open, not monogamous or non non monogamous, um, that you people get to decide how much they want to share with their partners and they can make an arrangement on what that's going to look like. And there isn't one way that looks the best. It isn't completely being a hundred percent honest with everything. That yeah. Well, I can give my example of my relationship uh, up until, I mean, more recently it's shifted a little bit, but when uh, my boyfriend and I first started being open, we had very different needs around hearing about what the other person was doing or not doing. So he had a he didn't want to hear anything on my side. It was a don't ask, don't tell, because he was like, I don't really want to know about it, but it's okay. Do whatever you want. I'm the exact opposite. I feel like if something else is happening with someone, if I don't know about it, it feels like it's happening behind my back and I get very anxious and paranoid. So like, I want to know lots of things like much more details. (laughs) And so we were uh, giving each other very different sets of information. And then slowly over time he said, okay, I think I want to know a little bit more about what you're doing. And I'd like to know like, which, you know, which nights you're actually going on a date, um, just so that I know which nights you are and which nights you aren't. Uh, so, you know, it's been a little bit less don't ask, don't tell on my side, but that was something that, you know, and I think some people have judgment about don't ask, don't tell, like it's not real, um, or it's not good communication, but I think people have different needs and I've wanted to respect his needs to not feel like it was in his face all the time, which, I can totally understand. And he wanted to respect my needs of like, okay, tell me what's going on. But he also had boundaries around how much he wanted to share. Like he didn't want to show me pictures of the women before he went out on a date with them. That didn't, that made him feel uncomfortable. So I was like, okay, I can handle that. I can adjust to that. Uh, So, you know, it's just been a a negotiation over time. Mm. And 
One thing I want to point out is the you know, the cultural differences here. Isn't isn't it? I believe this is what I heard that in uh, Europe, like countries like France, um, a don't ask, don't tell a part a, a component of the relationship is is kind of the more of the norm there. Like if you someone was to find out that their partner um, had slept with someone else, it actually is the the surprise and the shock and the oh my god, you stabbed me in the back and you ruined our relationship forever that we experience a lot of here in American culture is very different from the way that they handle it over there. Yeah, that might be true. I'm not exactly sure. I don't know if it's like our stereotypes of the French just yeah, being so like open. secretly yeah. free yeah. love, secretly free love and open, but, um, or, or it could be actually that there's just an assumption. Yeah. Nobody's going to be monogamous, but you always come home for dinner or whatever. You know, I don't know what the agreement is there. Or, but. or I think it's more along the lines that, um, that, that monogamy is practice, but the, the point that we get to here where, um, if someone was to, was to do something and you didn't know about it, the reaction just seems to be. I mean, it's pretty strong here. It's pretty strong. Oh, it's, there's, gosh. A, there's a big backlash against it. It's a you know breach in trust and betrayal and how dare you you hurt me and and I'm not saying none of this is um, is valid having those feelings, but I don't think that this if if you ever experience that um, understand that this is all contextual and you know, this is your experience and a lot of other people and of other cultures, including this one, don't have that same experience. Well, and I call it the hierarchy of sins, right? So if we think of like cheating, we think, oh, that's the worst sin ever. But we don't like imagine you're in a 20 year relationship and 10 years into it, your partner decides, hey, I don't want to have sex with you anymore, but I want you to be monogamous with me. Like that's a really hard you know, thing to do to someone, right? Like that, that, but for some reason we don't think of that as like an awful thing. We think, yeah, people get to decide about that and you're still supposed to be monogamous. You know, you don't think like, oh, you're the only person I can have sex with. And you've just told me you're not having sex with me anymore, but I'm not allowed to see anyone else. Like that should be very shocking and horrifying too, or as shocking and horrifying as cheating. If, um, if we're saying like how devastating it is to relationships. Mm -hmm. to intimacy. Right. But, but we think, but as soon as it comes out that somebody has cheated, they become the evil one and condemned and you see it in every movie and every television show, like you know, once and, a cheater, always a cheater. <laughs> exactly. Like you can't trust that ever, you know, and, and what I, I mean, Esther Perel is doing a lot of really wonderful work around this and actually researching, uh, affairs and how people recover from affairs and normalizing the fact that they're happening all the time and that, you know, they can actually deepen connection and relationship if you make it through uh, the affair with some empathy, mutual empathy. So, you know, hopefully that edge is softening over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we've we've talked about this on the on the past in the past on the podcast, but that um, I like how Esther Perel says, you know, th that cheating often can come out of a need or desire that isn't being met in the relationship. And her, some of her latest research is talking about how it's actually coming, can also come from just a, our, our kind of new age idea about entitlement to more than what you know, past generations thought they were entitled to, you know, more connection, more juiciness, more aliveness, more vibrance. Um, we have, we see this with the technology that we have, we have more access to note and even understand what's available to us. And so it creates this desire and this urge for people to, to want that. So it's not always coming out of uh, something that's missing, although it is often. Um, yeah. and there's a lot of components there to it. And it's just something that I would want to highlight that, um, and April's highlighted a lot too, because, you know, in, in her marriage, she had a, uh, an affair and that relationship did end. 
and um, we wanted to really highlight that um, it normalize the desire for other as well as uh, sometimes we make choices that are not in integrity with um, the boundaries that we've set up. And, we, and what Celeste is saying is that we have options. We have options to uh, do the work to uh, continue building and um, building that trust again and building the relationship in, in hopes of a deeper connection than what we had before. Or uh, we can choose to be too hurt to do that too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so can you describe so in a, like what your sessions look like and, and from a perspective of, say, a couple wanted to come to you and they um, were they've been in a monogamous relationship? Because actually we have a lot of our listeners that are in um, monogamous straight relationships there mm-hmm. and they um, so most of them are monogamous. But say one of those couples came to you and one of them had a desire to go into an open relationship and the other one does a little bit, but they're still on the fence. What do your sessions look like with those people in terms of what somatica looks like compared to other practices? Yeah, I think it happens, you know, it happens all the time. I think, you know, what it looks like first is is really honoring everybody's desires as totally valid and okay, while at the same time noting that we have impact on other people. So sometimes what we want to do is might be too scary or hard or beyond our partner's boundaries or capacity. So without any agenda that we're trying to make the relationship open or make the relationship monogamous, we explore what the, what people's needs are, what their fears are. And, you know, and it's, it, there's a lot of talking through it, but also there's attachment work, I think. So opening up a relationship requires two different pieces of work. It requires it deepening attachment so that people feel safe and deepening individuation so that people feel a sense of freedom. And so we're constantly working between those two energies of like, and sometimes deepening attachment can be teaching people how do you hold the other person literally or emotionally um, when they're scared? Uh, how do you reassure each other? So we're actually going to practice tools for that so that if people are going to go out and try things with other people, they have very strong tools, both about how to ask for what they need, how to sign up only for boundaries that they really feel like they can stick to, how to reassure a partner when the partner gets scared, even if, like, because you can get scared, even if your partner's following all the boundaries happens to me all the time. I mean, I've been in open relationship for 23 years and I, get totally scared when my partner's with other people. So, you know, I'm just not saying like, oh, I'm so, you know, I've got it all together and figured out. I actually have to ask my partner, hey, I need to tell you when I feel anxious and I need a little reassurance. You're not leaving me right. You know, and he needs to say, yeah, I'm I'm definitely not leaving you. You know, So I I think it's okay to have those needs for reassurance. And we try to help couples figure out what is it they need in order to be able to try this or do they need to decide that they aren't going to try it. And then the couple, the person in the couple needs to decide, can they just uh, live with that disappointment and release it? Um, or are they going to be resentful or frustrated? Do they need to move on from the relationship? Right. Because some people, pe- people can handle disappointment. There are adults who choose, Hey, even though I'm not, even though I'm non-monogamous and I know that about myself, I'm going to choose to be monogamous because, um, uh, this person is too afraid if I don't, and I don't want them to be afraid all the time. And I still want to be with them. So again, there's no agenda, but we just try to see what's possible. Mm. And, and in a somatica session, then compared to traditional talk therapy, um, this it's more experiential, right? You're not just talking to them. You're having them practice a lot of these things. So their bodies actually can get an understanding for what they're feeling and, 
um, and what the what the practices are for, you know, like you were saying, maybe just holding each other, whatever that is, you have them practice in your office. Exactly. Yeah, it's much more experiential. And but I think the biggest difference is that we don't judge any approach because I have I can't even tell you how many um, th- people have gone to other therapists and their therapists have said, well, open relationships are really hard, you know, like just discouraged it mm. or even like an affair happens this happens all the time. An affair happens in a relationship and they are seeing another couple's therapist and the couple's therapist tells the person who is having an affair, you need to stop the affair and work on this relationship. Mm -hmm. And then they come to me as an individual and they say, so I told them that I was going to stop the affair. I agreed to it, but I'm not stopping the affair. So all of the, all the couple's therapist has encouraged that person to do is to lie. (laughs) Great job. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because they've made a rule for an adult. You can't tell adults what to do. Mm -hmm. You have to help them figure out what they, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not your parent. I'm not going to say, you know, the right way to do this is this. Well, and then there's there's no right way, you know. There's exactly. that's just that therapist is just <laughs> assuming that there's one right way, and then they're telling, and so now they're just kind of reiterating the shame that's been carried on for generations. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you have you you read the book Sex with Dawn? Yes, okay. oh, definitely great book. Yeah, such a great book. And um, would you do you have, what other what other books would you recommend to non monogamous folks people or want to learn more about it? Um, I think Tristan Taramino's book, Opening Up, um, is good. It's a very, like, sort of broad-range, general approach. Um, I was a little bit – I didn't like more than two that much because I felt like it was sort of – it's it's very much a poly-oriented book, and I felt like it was very uh, utopian. Like, even though he personally had gone through all of the challenges of opening a relationship, he had kind of gotten to a place where he was like, this is the way that it's supposed to be. And if it's not that way, there's something wrong with it. You know, and he was very much into non-hierarchy and all these other things. And so I feel like that's, um, it's too steep a hill to climb from like, I'm going to go from a monogamous relationship to an open relationship and just suddenly just let my partner do whatever they want and have as many lovers and, you know, just somehow be okay with that. It didn't, it didn't feel like it was, it could be helpful to people who were, you know, hadn't been practicing it for years. And, and I think also there's just like a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation about jealousy out there, because I think jealousy comes up even if you've been doing open relationship for many, many years. And some people are just not jealous at all. That's just kind of like who they are. And other people are very jealous because of many reasons. Maybe they're terrified because they have abandonment trauma or they don't feel like they were treated fairly as a child and it feels like other people are getting more from their partner than they are or whatever the wound is can be touched by these open experiences, Mm -hmm. right? And so to actually um, make room for jealousy as opposed to try to get rid of it, I feel like is a really important thing. So any book that handles that well but uh i i don't know that the i don't know that the definitive book has been written yet yeah the perfect uh, non-monogamy bible (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think that's a really important part about about jealousy though that that people that is that myth that people in non-monogamous relationships don't experience jealousy or that jealousy is a bad thing to experience and um, and it's, it's something that comes up for a lot of people, whether they're monogamous or non-monogamous relationships, like you're saying. And, um, and I believe you, I, I remember you, I think it was you talking about ways to turn jealousy around into to a hot thing, like, um, uh, possessiveness and other things that can make it this kind of like sexy experience. It doesn't just have to be this like bad feeling of I'm not enough. And there can be some really good stuff there too. 
Yeah, I think I like being possessed. I think it feels really good, you know, and it's like I want somebody to say, like, you're all mine, even if I'm not all theirs. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because it's a fantasy and it's really sexy fantasy. And and I also for me, like low levels of jealousy are actually quite arousing. So, for example, when I have a threesome with my partner, me watching them have sex with someone else is a huge turn on for me. And it feels very safe for me because I'm also just right there. So I know everything that's going on. Nothing's happening behind my back. And it's really hot. And there's a little tinge of jealousy. But there's also just the beauty of, you know, watching two people have sex. And, and um, so, you know, for me, that's, that's really arousing. And I do feel like there's this edge of like, low levels of jealousy can be a real turn on. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people who don't explore any kind of never even acknowledge that they're attracted to other people and kind of shut down around all of that. I think sometimes that dampens arousal in relationship in monogamous relationships, right? Where if you're just like, oh, I think that person's kind of hot and your partner gets a little jealous and then they want to come after you and fuck you that night because <laughs> they know they're attracted to other people. I think that jealousy can be played with in monogamous relationships also as a way to sort of bring in other energy and, and reignite the turn on. Mm-hmm. I always suggest, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, <laughs> but I've had um, many a girlfriend in the past who had dealt with extreme jealousy issues with their partners, typically men. And so I'd be like, let's go to the strip club together and let's get buy him a lap dance and just watch. It can be really sexy. And it's worked every time. Well, it's been two times. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I love those experiential things where you're just like, okay, let's let's get this in like right out in the open and work with it, right? Because that that helps so much more than just trying to shove it under the carpet and pretend it's not there. And that's I think my biggest my biggest fear, which I do my very best to live my life, you know, knowing and, and kind of realizing my fear, but I try to move past it. But my biggest fear is losing the love. And that's something just working through my daddy issues and <laughs> my dad abandoning me. That's the something that I realize is my biggest trouble with non-monogamy because I fear, and I'm sure a lot of listeners can relate, um, what if they find someone better than me? That's always the thing. And I have my... My love language is the words of affirmation, and I always want to feel like I'm the best. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. That's my thing. So I think if maybe if my partner can just show up in that way um, continuously, I could explore non-monogamy eventually. Mm -hmm. Not mm -hmm. right now. I'm still yeah. building the, the foundation. Mm -hmm. I'm same like you. I, I mean, I, could, I have abandonment issues with both my parents at different times. Um, I need to feel like I'm the best, and I get really jealous if, you know, I want to be everything to everyone, you know? <laughs> I wonder um, if we would work together. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> <The love> connection. <laughs> so I can totally relate to that. And, and I think you just being honest and honoring it is the way that you'll get be able to potentially open if you ever decide to. Because instead of saying like, okay, I'm going to buckle down and do this. It's like, no, I need way more words of affirmation now that we're doing this because, because now we're touching on my fears more. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like what what I'm hearing is, is from you is um, is um, the one of the key things here is really getting clear on what your needs are and voicing those. You know, there's the radical honesty thing that we talked about, but what and and you're saying that you don't think that everything needs to be on the table; it needs to be said. But um, the key components of what we need, so find, having to understand what my individual needs are, and then voicing those and continuing to negotiate along the way is pretty much one of the more important things in in these relationships. 
Yeah, and I do believe honesty is extremely important. I think I was thinking particularly of the practice of mm-hmm. radical honesty, which to me, I think takes it to a whole other level, you know, but being deeply truthful about what you need, what your fears are, when you feel hurt. I think so often people just try to like get through their hurt instead of being, because they're afraid their partner's going to like fix it or freak out or get defensive or something like that. But if we can actually be able to share our hurt, um, and I've worked, you know, I've worked for a while with my partner to understand, like, when I say that I feel jealous or when I say that I'm scared, like, he doesn't have to do anything but, like, hug me and say, I totally hear you, sweetheart. I know it's scary for you. You know, I love you. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere, right? He doesn't have to say, like, well, how do we fix this? Or I'll never do that again. Or, you know, those kinds of knee-jerk reactions that people have because they're afraid of hurting people. Part of being in relationship is getting hurt. Like, that's not avoidable. Mm-hmm. So if we have this idea, this premise of like, I'm never going to hurt anyone in relationship, then you never actually get to be in relationship. Mm-hmm. And then you let someone down if you say, I'm never going to hurt you. And then you end up hurting them because, I mean, there's the hurt can come <laughs> from all the kinds of directions. So. Exactly. It's not just from like being with other people. It's like from like, you know, not calling when you said you were going to call or something like that. Right. Like it can come from anywhere. And, and one one last thing I wanted to um, to comment on was, was just something that April had said that the fear of losing love, which I think in everyone has <laughs> pretty much in relationship. Sure. I mean, maybe some people, maybe if you're your miracle people who are just like, no, no, I'm totally fine on my own. And if I lose someone, I'll be OK. But I think for the most part, most people be, based on attachment that comes from our childhood are afraid of losing the love. And um, having that as a reason for not exploring non-monogamy when you have a desire for non-monogamy, um, just you can also remind yourself that um, people lose a love even in monogamous relationships. It, All the time. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, but not, and again, I'm not preaching, but just some, something for the rational mind. Because I think that's that that fear brain that comes up, that comes up with all these reasons why this, this will. And of course it could open up potential things that wouldn't have been explored otherwise. And the desire is still there. So what's, what's worse is the, the, um, the suppressing of a desire. If someone has a really, really deep desire for that, that could lead to resentment or cheating, you know, things like that, or, um, opening it up and seeing what happens. And again, if the desire is not there, you don't have to do that, but, um, there's just, you know, kind of, you gotta weigh it out to see what, what's more fitting for you. I, I think love is one of the most brave, one of the bravest and most terrifying things that people do. Mm-hmm. Because you're always opening yourself up to potential loss, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And it's so powerful to be that brave and to find whatever it needs you need to work on or heal in order to be able to fully open yourself in that way. And it has nothing to do with monogamy or monogamy, non-monogamy. Like you said, we can always lose love. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. And there's limitless possibilities for our uh, just infinite love in our lives too, depending on what, if, if we figure out what works for us and, um, you know, asking for that and working towards it. Yep. Mm-hmm. You can always find, you can always find love too. Just uh-huh. like you can always. Yeah. There's, more, there's more people on the planet than there ever have been. So if folks out there are listening and you lost some love, there's more out there. You can find it. Just call it in and love yourself first. But allow yourself to feel your hurt while you're feeling yes. your hurt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't shove it. Don't brush it under the rug. Your hurt has is worthy of attention. And I do think um, yeah. sometimes, you know, we tell people to love themselves first, but I do think sometimes it is hard to love yourself. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we really work with in Somatica is having a attachment 
relationship with our clients and loving them unconditionally so that they can learn to love themselves, right? Because I think the way that people learn to love themselves as babies is somebody loves them madly, you know, and if they don't have that experience as children, they may need to get that experience from somewhere else in order to learn how to love themselves in that way. Sometimes because of the level of anxiety or fear or shutdown or clinginess that they're dealing with because of their fear, um, and I say clingy in a very loving way because I'm actually an anxiously attached person, so I'm a clinger. Mm-hmm. Um, Proud, <laughs> so I don't say it with any judgment, just mm-hmm. to put that out there. Um, but sometimes in order to be able to maintain long-term relationship with other people, you actually have to practice with somebody who can handle some of the more challenging pieces of what you're dealing with and help you heal around them so that you can be prepared to uh, deal with them in a in a, you know, a relationship out in the wild, Mm. which are much less controlled environments, right? Mm. It's a scary world out there. Are you, are are you, are you taking new clients and how can people work with you? Yeah, we do um, take some new clients and we also have a lot of practitioners that we've trained that we refer clients to. And you can go to www.celestamdanielle.com to see about our coaching practice and also somatica.com you can see all the different practitioners are listed on that website that we refer to and I do a free 15 minute phone consultation that people can sign up for and I'm happy to talk with people about how we can help and what about for folks who are interested in taking the training that I took the the, the sex and relationship training how when is that coming up and how can they learn more about that Yeah, we do have an intro day. So if you go to somatica.com, you can sign up for a four hour free intro, which is on uh, January 28th. And um, if somebody can't make it to the intro, they can also sign up on somatica.com for a 30 minute consultation about the training. And there's a whole page on somatica.com, which describes the whole thing. Um, And it's just, I mean, this last year was so amazing. And Amy, your, your year was awesome too, because we had such a large group of people that really there's this critical mass of like deep community building Mm. around somatica so um i'm excited to keep increasing that that community and i hope people will come join Mm -hmm. if i have time i'll make it (laughs) yeah thanks everyone so um to learn more you can go check out somatica.com or celestandanielle.com and um i took their training as i said and i highly recommend it whether you're coming from um, actually, we do get a lot of people that ask about how to get into this sex industry, meaning the sex and relationship coaching or the sex toy industry. Uh, and this is one of the avenues that I highly recommend to people, especially if you're interested in working um, with clients, you know, couples or one on one or whatever that may look like. Um, but also, this is really useful for people's own practice to learn sex and relationship tools and skills for themselves. So um, coming from someone who's taken it, I highly recommend it. And we'll try to get April in there someday. <laughs> All right. Thank you. <laughs> so thank you so much, Celeste. Yeah, it was really good to talk with you both. Don't forget to head on over to our website at shamelesssex.com for more. And for 15% off of some of our favorite sex toys, use coupon code SHAMELESSPP in all caps at purepleasureshop.com.